Then Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. This is the word of the Lord. When one reads this book of Job in one of the really good translations, like the one you find on the back of your pew there, one discovers that the very beginning of the book is in prose, and the very end of the book is in prose, and the chapters in between are all in poetry. Scholars have tried to figure out why that is. Perhaps someone wrote the poetry, someone else wrote the prose at the beginning and the prose at the end. Others have thought that all of the poetry itself might have been the work of several authors, perhaps over a period of time, that these friends of Job who come and debate with him about why all of his children have died, all of his possessions have gone, that a new generation decided to have a try at that and had the first friend speak and Job respond and the second friend and Job respond and the third friend and Job respond. Perhaps the poem was set aside and then someone else later picked it up again and had the first friend make his speech and so on. But scholars today seem to be more convinced that at least the poetry is the work of a single author, perhaps even the prose sections. But I like Dr. Carol Newsom's way of dealing with the prose sections. She asks, is this ending one that really fits with your experience? When someone has experienced undeserved suffering, losing all ten of one's children, all of one's possessions, even one's health, does God give them twenty more children, twice as many possessions, and restore one to health that he can live for four more generations? Does this ending fit for you? The scholars say that whether or not you think the prose sections were written by one author and the poetry sections by one or more others, the real key to the book is to be found in God's speech, beginning with chapter 38, and Job's response in chapter 42. Those are the most crucial parts. What God says to Job and the way Job responds. Last Sunday, I did the best I could to deal with what God said, and today we'll deal with Job's response. First of all, I've underlined the part, I had heard of you with my ears. Now I have seen you with my eye. When Gail and I go on vacation, often she goes to the computer and starts looking for things she might like to see in these different places. It really is helpful. Uh, She likes to go to places where famous people lived one time. See if you can get some sense of what that might have been like to be in the home where a famous person 
um, a, a person of letters. The last time we were in London, she wanted to see the house where Benjamin Franklin stayed when he came from the colonies over to bargain with the British. Uh, where did he live? What happened there? He was there for years. That house has been maintained. Uh, to more modern times when she had found their, the war rooms where Sir Winston Churchill and others actually stayed down in a, a tunnel underneath the heart of London when it was being bombed night after night. Uh, they have wax figurines down there. You can see these generals and so on who hunkered down, down not far from Number 10 Downing Street, just a little way down the street and then down below. On our trip before that to London, Gail wanted to see the museum for Florence Nightingale. Uh, it was very interesting. We took the, the underground uh, across the Thames River. Of course, it surfaces at that point. But across the Thames at the bridge that goes right past Big Ben. You have the House of Parliament there and, and, the, and the clock tower with Big Ben. Right across that bridge and just on the right-hand side, there once was a hospital. It's been replaced now by one much bigger and more modern. But that's the hospital where Florence Nightingale worked, and it's been made into a museum. The Lady of the Lamp, you remember she was called. The first non-royal woman ever to have her picture on British currency. She was born in 1820. She was born into a family of privilege. Her father was determined that though most young ladies did not get to go to school in the early 1800s, that Florence certainly would, that she would have every opportunity his money could afford. Very early on, she had this heart for people who were sick or suffering. She was drawn to people who were sick or suffering, so she started nursing not only in London, but she had opportunity to go to France and study nursing and on to Germany and study nursing. 1854 is the period of her life we remember best. The Crimean War began. This was a war between the British and the French against the Russians. For a change, the French and British were together on the same side. But this horrible fighting in the Crimean was, was really, really difficult. If you've read stories about Florence Nightingale that depict her only in the way the soldiers described her, this long white gown in the wee hours of the morning, making her way among the wounded with a lamp. But she was tough as well from what I've read. There's a new biography out about her and it says she was one of the first to see how important cleanliness was. At one time before the Crimean War, she had tried to persuade the Prime Minister to do something about the lack of cleanliness. But when soldiers were injured, sailors were injured, so often they died needlessly because of infection. She said, it's as if we marched 1,100 of our finest out onto the plains of Salisbury and shot them ourselves. 1,100 men per year before the Crimean War, she felt, were dying just because of infections. So she was for cleanliness and hygiene. She was 34 when the Crimean War began. And it was those years of her moving up and down the hallways and from tent to tent in the battlefield, this Lady of the Lamp, that would forever cause her name to be one we would remember. Her sister said of her, everything that had happened in Florence's life up to that point, 34 years of age, had prepared her for that Crimean War. 
But for you and me, that telling point came in Egypt a few years before. She had been uh, dating very capable young men, young men of privilege in London. But she took a trip to Egypt. And as she saw these great antiquities of history and went to some of the places that were pointed out to her as where the children of Israel had lived and where Moses had been and how Pharaoh had been faced down at this point and another, she wrote in her diary, Early this morning, God spoke to me and said, Florence, you can do much good if you do not care about the reputation meaning whether she was honored or not, if she were concerned only about doing much good, God would enable her to do much good. She never married, never mothered a child. She served till she died at 90 years of age, giving all those many, many years. I'd heard about you with my ears, and then I saw you with my eyes. Number two, I underlined this part. And this is the key to the whole book. And I want you to know that in the commentaries I read this week, it was translated six different ways. Our translation says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. One of the problems with translation is that Hebrew had consonants, not vowels. And a word was often represented with just two or three consonants. And putting a different vowel between the consonants could change the meaning pretty dramatically. And there were no prepositions here. And so some say, now, with all that Job's been through and the way he responds to God's strong speech to him, does this ending fit? Or is there not another ending that fits better? Dr. Marvin Pope, who has one of the better commentaries, I think, on this book, says, the preposition should not have been repent in dust and ashes, but repent of dust and ashes. But what he's repenting of is his attitude, his ranting and raving for 39 chapters He's moving from that attitude to a different one. Dr. Carol Newsom says, I think repent is not the right word. I think the word here is retract. I retract what I've been saying and find comfort from dust and ashes. Another, Dr. Norman Hobble, I think his commentary is also very good. And Dr. Hobble says, I believe what Job is saying is, when I lost all my children, I lost all my possessions, and I was covered in sores, I withdrew from everybody. I dressed myself in sackcloth and ashes, signs of mourning. I sat on a dung heap and scratched my sores with a piece of broken pottery. And I know now, This is not the time to be alone. That without the presence of Almighty God and others, I can't make it. With the presence of Almighty God and others, 
I can make it. Mark Dara is an attorney in our city. He's the son of a Methodist preacher. Dr. Dwight Dara, one of our most capable and beloved ministers for many years, retired now. He was a district superintendent shortly after I arrived in Oklahoma and I got to know him. Mark's a storyteller, not a clergy storyteller like his dad, an attorney storyteller, but he writes these stories and he sends them out to friends and relatives. He agreed to put me on his mailing list years ago and I read every one he sends to me. Not so long ago, he was writing about a client he had when he was a younger attorney. This woman had lived a long and good life, though she had been a widow now for 10 years. She and her husband had one son. They'd sent him to college. He had done well. He had become head of one of the Fortune 500 companies in Chicago and had lived there almost all of his adult life, was still living there. Had one daughter. This daughter had stayed in Tulsa. She had become head of human resources for a nice large company here in Tulsa as well. The mother had called Mark and said she wanted him to help her with her last will and testament. And when they got it done, she told him she was going to say to her son, come home from Chicago, we need to talk. She was going to invite the daughter to come at the same time and she wanted Mark Dara to read her last will and testament to her son and daughter and then say to them, and she doesn't want any nonsense when this time comes, no fussing, no squabbling. Mark said he could do that. So she summoned the son and he flew in and asked the daughter to meet them and the four of them sat down. And Mark said he told them what the mother wanted him to tell them and then he read the last will and testament and then he said, now your mother wants no nonsense when death comes to her. No nonsense, no fussing, no squabbling. Are there any questions? They both shook their heads and their mother said, would you step outside? I want to say one more thing to Mr. Dara. And when they were both outside the room, she looked at Mark, sort of leaned into him and said, did you see the look in my son's eyes when you were reading my last will and testaments? For the first time in his life, he realized that one day his mother would die. Every Ash Wednesday, we kneel at the altar. We have ashes affixed to our forehead. From dust you came and to dust you shall return. But we don't have to do it by ourselves. God Almighty is ready to be with us. And there are significant others who will also be with us in our darkest, darkest times. Number three. I know, Job says, that you can do all things. I know you can do all things. And what that means is that even when others have told us there's nothing else that can be done, you and I keep on praying because we believe God can do all things. When my bishop down in Texas appointed me to be Sunday night preacher at the First Methodist Church in Houston, I asked Dr. Charles Allen what had they been doing at the Sunday night services? How had they structured them? He said, well, basically we sing 25 minutes and we have a prayer, take up the offering. The preacher preaches. And then we invite everybody to come to the altar and pray. In fact, he said, we ask them, please don't leave until you've come to the altar to pray. You can pray as briefly or as long as you like and then feel free to just slip out to your car and drive away. 
But just before they come to the altar, we sing a little song. That's what we've been doing. And I asked him what the song was, and he told me. So that's what I want to do. When I was appointed there, it was just two months after my only brother had been drafted into the Vietnam War. He became a part of the 4th Infantry and was sent up in the demilitarized zone. His unit was being marched up and down one of the valleys there, suffering casualties every day. He was there in the big Tet Offensive in January uh, 1968. And every Sunday night, I wanted to be at that altar as well. I was at that altar as well after we had sung the little song. MD Anderson Hospitals in Houston. People fly into Houston from all over the country to be treated at MD Anderson Cancer Treatment Research Hospital. And every week, virtually, we had calls from clergy across the country saying, I've got a a member of my church, a woman, a man, a child, out at MD Anderson. Would you be willing to go check on her? And we, clergy of First Methodist, always made those calls. It was amazing to me how many times I'd seen a family at MD Anderson Hospital when those family members would be kneeling at that altar the next Sunday night. Even though the one they loved was in the hospital, they were there at the altar kneeling with us. It was a difficult time. 1968, Senator Kennedy was shot down in Los Angeles. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. We had the horrible Democratic Convention in Chicago with people throwing human instrument on police officers and people fighting to get in or out of the convention center. You remember all that was going on at that time. And people were gathering in the heart of Houston, Texas, waiting to come to the altar until we could sing, Only believe, only believe, all things are possible, only believe. And so we keep praying and praying because we believe God can do anything. Number four. Job then says, and I believe nothing can thwart your plans. Nothing can stop history from ending up where God wants it to end up. And though my experience is that we don't see all things made right in this lifetime. There are many unfair things that are not set right in this lifetime. I believe in the eternity of God where all things finally will be made right. I think we can look again at the Jewish community. They've been at this business of faith in the one true God 2,000 years longer than you and I have been. They have faced undeserved suffering century after century for 4,000 years. What can they tell us? This book of Job is their book. And they've written many books since the book of Job. Dr. Elie Wiesel was scooped up from his home with his family. The Nazis first put them in a ghetto, then put them on a train and sent them to Birkenau. If you saw Schindler's List, you saw the Judenrampe where one officer stood 
motioning people left and right, left and right. Ailey's mother and sister were motioned one way. It meant they would be dead within an hour. Ailey and his father were motioned in the other because they were male, seemed to be a little bit stronger, perhaps could work. They were moved over to Auschwitz a few miles from Birkenau. And the months ground on. Elie Wiesel in his first book after his being released after the end of the war was called Night. He describes how horrible Birkenau was. Gail and I wanted to be in those places. If you want to be where Benjamin Franklin lived, if you want to be where Florence Nightingale once was a nurse, wouldn't you want to be where so many of God's people lived out the last hours of their lives? We spent hours at Madonic, sometimes not even speaking to each other for long periods of time, just walking building after building. At Auschwitz, two days later, we spent hours all morning walking through the grounds of Auschwitz. Arbeit macht frei. Work didn't make them free. Six and a half million were killed. At Beer Canal, we walked down the Judenrampe that we had seen in Schindler's List. We stood right where that officer stood, waving people left and right, left and right. Death now, death in a few weeks, at the most a few months. Elie Wiesel said his father held to the faith. He, as a teenage boy, didn't want to talk to God. He didn't want to have anything to do with God. He said he no longer believed in God. What he believed in was this stench of the burning of families, of people, of mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and grandchildren. Elie Wiesel said the morning he was taken, his father was reading Talmud to him. The commentaries on the Hebrew Scriptures, finally the end came. Ailey saw his own father die. Not long before the liberation forces came, but he too died. Ailey was all alone in the world. And then liberation came. He was put on a train and sent to France. He had to be convinced that these showerheads were going to deliver nothing but warm water. And after a good shower, he was fed given pajamas and shown to a room. And then a person asked, is there anything else we can do for you, young man? And he asked, do you have Talmud? And they brought him the commentary his father had been reading the morning they were seized. He said, we Jews can love God or we can be angry and hate Him, but we can't be indifferent we just can't be indifferent. One concentration camp. Liberation forces went into a room where all who were there were dead. But scratched right above the baseboard on that wall, I believe in the sun, even when it does not shine. I believe in love, even when I feel it not. I believe in God even when He does not speak. Amen.